we're going to get into our study this morning. We're going to be in the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 10. And we're in our message series on the life of Jesus, the time Jesus spent on the earth as a man, performing miracles, and most importantly, teaching who he is and what life is really all about. And we know that the life of Jesus is documented in four books in the Bible that are called the Gospels. They're written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, although there's a good chance that Mark was really a disciple named Peter's account of the life of Jesus. Three of those guys, both Peter and Mark, whoever it was who really authored it, Matthew and John were all disciples of Jesus. They lived and walked with him for the three years he ministered on the earth. Luke was around at the same sort of time, a little bit after those guys. He was a historian and he was a traveling companion of Paul the Apostle who wrote most of the rest of the New Testament. And so these four books document the life of Jesus. They're called the Gospels. And today we're going to be in chapter 10 of the Gospel of Mark. And I want to say this every week. You don't have to agree with what I teach today, but you do have to take it seriously. In other words, we're going to teach what we believe the Word of God is saying, not what we want it to say, but what it actually says. And if you disagree, then you have to dig into the Word of God for yourself. If you're really interested in truth, saying, I don't like the way that sounds or I don't like the way that makes me feel, is not a valid argument. It's not a way to pursue truth. So if you disagree or don't like something you hear today, I encourage you to dig into the word of God for yourself and seek out the truth because there's nothing more important in life than knowing the truth. Nothing. We believe Jesus is the truth, came to tell us the truth, and showed us how to walk and live in light of the truth. And last time we were in our study, Jesus talked about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. If you missed that message, I want to encourage you to listen to it online. Today we're going to encounter the only person in the Gospels who left an interaction with Jesus worse than he came. He came happy and confident, yet he would leave sorrowful and broken. It's a feel-good message. It's the interaction Jesus had with a man famously known as the rich young ruler. And I think you're going to find that it reveals some big answers to some big questions and some truths that may be a little bit difficult for us to hear, but they are true. If we'll receive and respond to them, though, we'll find that they chart a path that leads to life and to genuine freedom, which I think we all want and desire. So to give you a historical context, pretty much all Jews at this time in Israel believe that wealth was an indicator of God's favor and blessing. Thank goodness we've moved on past that in the church. So they believe that the more you had, the more God liked you. So expand that thought in your mind and imagine life in Israel at this time. The wealthy would talk down to those who were not and those who were not accepted it because after all they were more righteous than they were and they had a right to correct them. And if you could acquire wealth, you would therefore be more righteous because if you had more wealth, it meant you were more righteous. So the pursuit of wealth could be excused as the pursuit of Righteousness And whatever you had to do to become wealthy was justifiable because if it gained you more wealth, then you gained more righteousness. And you could say, well, if the way I got this money was wrong, then I wouldn't have this money, but I have it, so clearly God is okay with me and he's blessing me. So you could justify whatever you did to acquire wealth. The wealthy were looked at, they were admired, they were revered. 
And we'll find that even Jesus' disciples held to this ancient form of the prosperity gospel. And that's where we're going to jump in. We'll be in Mark 10, 17. Let's read together. It says, Now as he, Jesus, was going out on the road, one came running and knelt before him. You see, that's how we know he was young. He was running and able to kneel. It's actually Matthew's gospel that tells us he was young and he was a ruler, which simply means he was most likely a member of the Sanhedrin, the spiritual and political body that ruled cultural and religious life in Israel at this time under the authority of the Roman Empire. He had status and wealth, and people would have been immediately interested when he began to converse with Jesus. They would have tuned in. We keep reading, and it says, the rich young ruler asked him, good teacher, underline good teacher, what shall I do, underline I do, that I may inherit eternal life? What may I do that I may inherit eternal life? And this man's question makes an enormous assumption about spiritual truth. The assumption here is that man needs to be made right with God. He needs to be reconnected with God. He needs to be put in relationship with God. He needs to please God. However you want to put it, this man recognizes that there is a God and assumes that the key to spiritual life is cracking the code of how to be right with God, of what God wants from him. What does God require of a man? Most people in our society recognize that there is some sort of spiritual dimension or greater spiritual reality. And most people in our society recognize that this is an important question, but it is dismissed with the answer of, well, just be a good person. Whoever God is, I'm confident that what he wants is just for me to live my life well, being good and doing good to others. I'm sure most of your friends and co-workers who aren't believers, that's their view on spirituality. That view, like the rich young ruler's view, assumes that there is something we can do to be good enough for God. That's the huge assumption. It assumes that there is something we can do to make ourselves right with God. So make a note of this. The rich young ruler incorrectly assumes that he can make himself right with God. It's an incorrect assumption because the Bible makes it clear. There's nothing we can do to be good enough for God. Nothing. Why? Because God's perfect and his standard is perfection. And because he is perfect, he's not hypocritical in demanding that standard from others. He's entitled to it. He's fair and just in asking for it, despite the fact that we cannot attain it. Because he's perfect, our first sin was gross rebellion against him. It was spitting in the face of our creator, committing the most egregious transgression in the physical universe, the rejection of God, our maker, in favor of ourselves. The ultimate betrayal. The biggest reason God is justified in demanding perfect, sinless righteousness from us is because he has made a way for us to attain it. The very reason Jesus is on the earth in this time is to fulfill his ultimate mission of living the perfect, sinless life we couldn't live, then dying in our place, receiving the punishment that awaited us, and then rising from the dead in our place also that we could gain victory over sin and death through Jesus. There's nothing we can do to be good other than receive the goodness of Jesus that was won for us on our behalf in our place. There's nothing we can do to be good other than receive the goodness of Jesus. The foundation of every false religion and every cult in the world today is the idea that there is something we can do to make ourselves right with God. 
We cannot save ourselves. We're justified one way by the grace and mercy of Jesus who loved us before the world was made. And when I was studying this, I read and listened to some wonderful teachings. But everything moves on so quickly, for those of you who know the story, onto the subject of money and wealth and the grip of money. And everyone I listened to was so excited to talk about that, that none of the commentaries, none of the messages I listened to, actually noticed what the rich young ruler's initial question was. You see, the rich young ruler doesn't say, how should a follower of God view money? That's not what he asks. He asks something problematic, something really serious. He asks, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? That's the question he asks Jesus. And so my first thought is, well, maybe he's talking about rewards and he's not talking about salvation. So I did what any good Bible student does. I went and looked up the verse in the original Greek and the word used for life is the Greek word zoe. And it's the same word used by Jesus in places like John 3.16, which famously reads, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The word life there is not talking about rewards. It's talking about being saved, salvation. We all understand that about John 3.16. So if you go home today and you go on to blueletterbible.com, and you put in this verse and you look at that word life, it'll show you all the other places in the Gospels where Jesus uses that Greek word zoe. And every time he uses it, it's not about rewards, it's about salvation. And I point that out to underscore the seriousness of today's study. The topic is ultimately not about how to raise your game as a believer and a follower of Jesus. The topic is ultimately about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. In verse 18 we read, so Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. Underline, no one is good but one, that is God. You see, nobody called a rabbi good in those days because no rabbi would allow anyone to call them good. The word good that they were using meant without sin. And because they knew no one's without sin except God, no rabbi would accept the praise of being called good. But Jesus doesn't say, no, I'm not good. Jesus just highlights it for us so that we would recognize that the rich young ruler is recognizing Jesus as being without sin. He's recognizing him as being Messiah and he's asking him about eternal life because he believes he has the answers. He wants to know, how do I get to heaven? But as we shall see, it's no coincidence, make a note of this, that Jesus begins by reminding the rich young ruler that only God is good. Before they get into their conversation, Jesus says, let's just all remember, only God is good. And that's going to be important. Because we'll find that while the rich young ruler claims to believe this, his view of himself contradicts this belief. Verse 19, Jesus says to him, well, you know the commandments. So Jesus points him to the Old Testament, specifically the law of God that was given through Moses in the book of Exodus, famously known as the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are a summary of all the laws of God, all that a man or woman would need to do with 100% consistency in order to meet God's standard. So you want to be good enough for God, here's the standard, the Ten Commandments. Do this perfectly all the time without fail and you'll be good enough for God. Jesus says, you know how to be saved. 
All you got to do is keep the law. And he goes on and he lists them. He says, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your mother and father. And he answered and said to him, teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth. All these things I've kept from my youth. Underline all these things I've kept. So hang on a minute. Didn't we just establish that only God is good? But now this rich young ruler is claiming that, that he's good. And he keeps God's commandments. And you know what's interesting to me? Jesus doesn't cut him down to size by saying hypocrite. He doesn't say liar. He doesn't say what about that thing you did last week? Because while nobody keeps the law perfectly, I think the reason Jesus doesn't go after him is because he knows this man really was sincere about trying to follow the law of God. He was really trying to be faithful to God, trying to live with honesty and integrity he was the real deal, at least in his own eyes, in the eyes of the community. All he was lacking was insight into his own condition. He was sincere, but he had an overinflated view of how good he was. Some scholars suggest that the rich young ruler is expecting to be commended by Jesus, and he only comes to Jesus looking for praise, expecting Jesus to say, you're doing a great job, keep rocking. But I don't hold that view. You see, I believe this man has the sense deep down in his soul that all his good deeds and his efforts to be a good person are not enough. There's still something missing in his life, and he can't put his finger on it. And I think that's why in Matthew's account of this same interaction, the man then asks Jesus, what do I still lack? What do I still lack? Matthew adds that detail, that this man knew something was missing. So make a note of this. Despite his best efforts at being good, the rich young ruler recognized something was still missing from his life. Despite his best efforts to be good, he recognized, man, something's still missing from my life. Something's lacking. And Jesus is going to answer that question, but I want to suggest that underneath the answer Jesus is about to give is the truth that what the man was lacking was the epiphany, the realization that he could not fulfill the law of God. He really thought he could keep the law of God perfectly. He thought he was doing it. The Bible reveals to us that the purpose of the impossible standard of perfection of the Ten Commandments was to be essentially a mirror. It was designed to be held up by each of us, that we would look upon the Ten Commandments, God's standards, and recognize how dirty we are, recognize that we're all sinners. But while the law was a mirror that could show us we were dirty, the law had no power to make us clean. Sometimes, like the rich young ruler, we have a view of ourselves that's way too high. We think we're really good people because we look at other people and say, well, we're doing better than them. But we forget they're not the standard. God's the standard. And because we're slow to understand this truth, Jesus took some time in his famous Sermon on the Mount to help us slowpokes understand that the law exposes all of us as sinners. So Jesus explained in the Sermon on the Mount that from God's perspective, from the standard of perfection, when you're asking about what is sin, Jesus says, listen, from God's perspective, heaven's perspective, a lustful thought in a man's mind is as serious as full-blown adultery because it starts the same way. He says an angry thought towards a person is as bad as murder because it starts in the same place. You see, just in case we were delusionally self-confident about how good we are as people, 
Jesus made it real clear that we're all sinners. We all fall short of God's standard and none of us can meet it. So the challenge for Jesus in this interaction is how is he going to open the rich young ruler's eyes to understand that he cannot make himself good? Because what this young man needs is not one more thing to do. He needs to understand that he cannot make himself good because when he has that realization, then he can turn to Jesus and find grace and forgiveness through Jesus and find what he is lacking. You see, the news that God forgives sinners is only good news to sinners. The news that God forgives sinners is only good news to sinners. It can't be received by those who don't think they're sinners. So step one is opening the man's eyes to the truth that he's not meeting God's standards despite his best efforts. And it's interesting, when Jesus gives this list of commandments to the young man, Jesus leaves out two very, very specific commandments. He leaves out the first commandment, the big one. In Exodus 23, the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. For 3,000 years, Jewish and Christian scholars have agreed that what this command is talking about is the reality, the truth, that anything in my life that I prioritize over my relationship with God is my God. It's my God before the living God. In Deuteronomy 6, we find what's famously known as the Shema. It's the commandment that Jesus himself would say, this is the most important commandment of them all. It says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. So Jesus leaves out from that list, you'll have no other gods before me. Secondly, he leaves out another very interesting commandment. You shall not covet. In Exodus 20, 17, it says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. So God said, don't have any other gods before me. And he said, don't want what you don't have. Despite all his best efforts, write this down. The rich young ruler was being ruled by money. The rich young ruler was being ruled by money. He coveted it. That means when he encountered people who had more than him, he wanted what they had. This is why coveting is so serious. He was unsatisfied with that which God had already given him enough of. He was unsatisfied with that which God had already given him enough of. And the result of that coveting was that money had crept onto the throne of his life and he was failing at the single most important commandment of them all. He did not love God more than anything else. Money was his God before the living God. The Lord was not on the throne of his life. Money was. When money required something of him, he did it. When he had to choose between money and God, he chose money. So how is Jesus going to open this young man's eyes to the truth? He's being ruled by money, and money is his God. Well, verse 21, then Jesus, looking at him, underlined these two words, loved him loved him and that's the second reason I don't think this man is being pious or, or intentionally being hypocritical I think he's sincere he's blind to his true spiritual condition but he's sincerely seeking truth because when Jesus deals with the Pharisees he's very short with them he has contempt for them righteous contempt but contempt nonetheless Jesus only has love for this man which makes me believe this man is sincere 
And I asked you to underline that phrase, loved him, because it's there to tell us one thing, that what Jesus is about to tell this man next comes out of his love for this man. It's not out of a desire to teach him a lesson, put him in his place, or cut him down to size. It's about sharing the most loving truth with this man that Jesus possibly could at that moment. This was for this man's good. So write this down. God's correction in our lives always comes from a place of love for our good. His correction in our lives always comes from a place of love for our good. That is something for all of us to settle in the Christian life, to trust the character of God, that his correction is always for our good. And Jesus said to him, one thing you lack. He says, yeah, you do lack something. And only the Lord can do this, right? He shine a light on that one part of our lives that we don't want to acknowledge, that we don't want to deal with, that's affecting the rest of our life. So he says, you want to know what you lack? You, you want me to put my finger right on the real issue? Here it is. Go your way, sell whatever you have, that means everything you have, and give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross, and follow me. Man, how, how heavy is that? How heavy is that? Can you, can you imagine? You're a genuinely good guy. You come to Messiah seeking clarity on how to live in a way that will make you right with God, cause you to have eternal life. And what you're really asking is, what final tweak do I need to make in my life? What's the last 1%? What's the last yard? And Jesus says, oh, just one thing. Just one thing. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, leave everything and come follow me. That's the last thing. Now what would you do if Jesus said that to you? Let's be honest, the, the agony that the rich young ruler feels at this moment, some of us feel that when God just asks for 10%. For me, the real question is, is Jesus really saying is he really saying that this is what this man has to do in order to be saved? I really thought about it. I read it over and over and over. And, and I don't know about you, but I don't know how to make the text say something else. The man said, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you have to keep the commandments of God. The man says, well, I've done all of those. And he says, yeah, yeah, but... You still got to do this one thing if you want to keep the commandments of God. So he's telling this guy, you want, you want to be perfect? This is the one thing you got to do. And we know this man must have sinned. So it's not like if he had done this, he would have perfectly kept the law of God. That can't be the issue. But Jesus seems to be saying, this is what you have to do to inherit eternal life. And I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, like me, man, I love grace and I love that our whole faith is built on the grace and goodness of God. And so sometimes when we hear something that seems to be too difficult or it seems like it's asking too much of a person, we want to dismiss it and say there must be some other explanation because grace. The only problem is that Jesus also said stuff like this. I put it on your outline in Matthew 10. Jesus said stuff like, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. 
He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. It's pretty heavy, too. And in the avalanche of grace that comes our way from God, we sometimes forget what he did in order to be able to extend us grace. There wasn't just a grace switch that God flicked and said, now I'm grace. Grace, 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 grace. It costs something. The Son of God, the one who created everything, the one who lacks nothing, was rejected by his own creation. And instead of destroying that creation, which he had every right to do, he chose to enter into his creation, become flesh and bone like you and I. And he did this so that he could experience everything we experience, not from what he messed up, but all the pain and all the violence and all the suffering that exists in a perfect world, completely perverted by us, his creation. He's mocked, he's teased, he's scorned, he's despised, he's hated by his own people, even his own literal brothers at times. He's considered insane by his own family. Then he's betrayed, beaten, and crucified on a cross, dying alone, murdered. And this is the Son of God we're talking about. This is God himself. So who among us is willing to stand up now and say, Jesus is asking too much of the rich young ruler? Who among us is going to stand up and say, he has no right to ask for that level of commitment. It's unreasonable. Who's going to call Jesus unfair for saying, if you want to be saved, I have to be your God, your only God. Anybody going to say that doesn't seem like a fair deal? Man, God forgive us if we've ever thought that asking for our lives in exchange for his was God asking too much of us. Write this down. Radical freedom requires radical commitment. Radical freedom requires radical commitment. And yet because God is gracious, he will never ask anything of you or I that he hasn't given us the ability and the power to accomplish. In other words, since Jesus asked the rich young ruler to sell everything he had and follow him. We can know for sure with absolute certainty that God had made the power available to the rich young ruler for him to do that. And we don't feel that power sometimes right away, but it is released when we decide to say yes to God. So when God asks us to do something, we've already lost when we begin weighing, can I really do that? That's not the question. The real question is, do I want to do that? Do I want to do what God is asking me to do? Do I have the desire to please God, to walk with God? And if we do, we say yes to God even when we have no idea how we're actually going to do it. We start with yes. Every time we say yes to God instead of ourselves, we reestablish God's place on the throne of our life. Every time we say yes, we reestablish his place on the throne. A couple of other things we notice. Keep in mind, Jesus hasn't died on the cross yet. Nobody knows that's coming except him. So what everyone is hearing Jesus say is, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, die, and then come follow me. Knowing what we know about the disciples, they must have been thinking, well, how can a person follow you if they're dead already? 
But we know from the rest of the New Testament that would be written after this, Jesus is talking about dying to yourself, putting to death the part of yourself that wants to live for yourself instead of living for God. And I'm confident the Holy Spirit gave the rich young ruler insight into this as Jesus said this. And then we notice that Jesus tells this man to sell everything because the result will be that he will have treasure in heaven. So apparently while this man is fabulously wealthy in this life, he's poor in the kingdom of God. He's got nothing. Most likely because his good deeds were done in order to try and make himself good. They weren't done out of gratitude to God. They were done in an attempt to justify himself. And you may disagree with me, but, but I don't think the rich young ruler is even saved at this point. One of the recurring themes in this chapter is going to be the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. That, that many people who seem to be important and blessed in this life will not be that way in eternity. And we should be careful not to confuse success in this life with success in eternity. Write this down. The rich young ruler was a prince in the eyes of the world and a pauper in the eyes of heaven. He's a prince in the eyes of the world and a pauper in the eyes of heaven. So how does the rich young ruler receive this instruction from Jesus? I really believe that what Jesus is saying is he's saying there's, there's one thing between you and me. There's one thing that is the obstacle to you finding what you feel is lacking in your life. There's one obstacle to your salvation right now. In verse 22, after Jesus gives him that instruction, it says, but he, the rich young ruler, was sad at this word. And went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Great possessions. And that's why I don't think he was saved. Not because he didn't do what Jesus said, but because the Son of God, who he recognized was Messiah, God in the flesh, God looked at him and said, this is what you must do. And if you do this one thing, you'll be saved. Your life will belong to God and you'll spend eternity in heaven. And instead of rejoicing over the fact that he could have left that interaction knowing from the Son of God, you're saved. You're good. He could have left knowing that. Instead of being glad over that, he's solely focused on what it's going to cost him. And he's sorrowful over that. He's not rejoicing over the ability to be saved He's mourning over what it's going to cost him to be saved because he knows he's not really willing to do that. He didn't accept Jesus' invitation to be set free and lack nothing. Write this down. The rich young ruler's response revealed the identity of his true God. It simply revealed the identity of his true God. So out of all the issues that Jesus could have chosen to deal with, he could have had a man come up who had any number of issues. God could have orchestrated that. Why did God choose a guy who had an issue with money? Well, why are a full one-third of all of Jesus' teachings about money and stuff? Because it's an issue for most people. It's a barrier of faith for most believers. And the longer it takes us to get over the issue of trusting God with our money, the better we get at saying no to God. Because in order to say no to God with our money... We have to be able to delude ourselves into believing that everything about our relationship with God is okay. It's all good. Sure, we have a disagreement over here in the area of money, but overall, things are fine. And when we do that, we buy into the lie that we can compartmentalize our faith, that we can have a great relationship with God and separate money from that. 
We can love Jesus, but, you know, we can do what we want in our intimate relationships. We can compartmentalize that. We love Jesus, keep money out of it. Love Jesus, but be a little bit dishonest at work to pad the numbers. You know, when you read about or hear about maybe friends or, or famous believers who have fallen into sin but been serving God the whole time and you can't believe it, that's always what's happened. That's always what we've done. We've compartmentalized our faith. We're saying, I'm not in a crisis of faith. I'm not, I'm, I believe in Jesus. I'm going to heaven. All that stuff is good. We've just compartmentalized it and said, I'm a good person. My relationship with God is good, but I can have a separate room in my life over here where God and I disagree. And that's fine. We're fooling ourselves, but we're not fooling God. We can't compartmentalize our faith. And Jesus chose the issue of money because it is the issue that most people compartmentalize. Verse 23, then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished, underline, astonished at his words. They're astonished because, remember, they believe the prosperity gospel. They're like, what? Are you serious? It's hard for a rich person, but I thought rich people were more spiritual. And if you're a pastor, this is a great place to end the message because you can make some sort of appeal along the lines of you have to give up everything, sell everything, and follow Jesus. And then we sing I Surrender All, and you all cry, and it comes together really nicely. But that's not the end of the story, so we have to keep reading. The disciples are astonished because they're thinking, if this wealthy man, this, this pillar of the community, this moral man, this good man, if he is going to have such a hard time getting into the kingdom of heaven, being saved, then what hope do the rest of us normal people have? we got no chance. But it, and it says, but Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches. Do you notice this? He changes the wording now. He doesn't just say who have riches. Now he says it's hard for those who trust in riches. And he's clarifying for them. He's saying, guys, guys, listen. It's not being rich that is the real issue. The issue is those who trust in riches. It's hard for them to enter the kingdom of God because they already have a faith. They have faith in their wealth. They already have a God. It's called money. Their faith, their hope, their trust, they have a God. And it's very, very hard for them to find the true God because they already have a false one that they're committed to. They've already put their trust in something else. Then Jesus says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. 99% of the time when you hear a pastor teach us, they're going to tell you there was this gate in the city that was small. That's all not true, by the way. Totally made up. Zero archaeological evidence. It makes absolutely no sense because if they really had this smaller gate that they use at night for security reasons, it wouldn't be better security if it took you 30 minutes to get your camel through the door and you were exposing the city for 30 minutes. It would make way more sense to have a big door that you could open for 10 seconds and then quickly shut. Total Total nonsense, the needle gate. What Jesus is doing is very simple. He's using humor. He's just using a visual metaphor to explain, man, this is what it's like when someone trusts in money, when they have a bunch of it. He says trying to help them understand that they're in a position of lack, like the rich young ruler, 
that they don't have all they need, that they're in a real problem state, when they've achieved everything most people on the earth set out to achieve in life, Jesus said when they trust in money, getting them to understand that they need to be saved is like trying to push a camel through the eye of a needle. He's simply saying it doesn't happen very often. It doesn't happen very often. There's a reason that people become more open to the gospel the lower down you go in the financial classes. There's a reason revivals are always going on in the third world because the more we have, the less we feel the need to trust God. And that's what I describe it to people who live in other countries, even who live in America about Vancouver. You know, when they ask like, oh, when you started the church, how did you fundraise to plant the church and things like that? And I'd say, man, it's difficult because I, I can't go out and make a video uh, of miserable looking people. I'm just gonna go out and it's gonna be a bunch of people in great shape jogging by beautiful lakes, playing volleyball, looking happy. And it doesn't really work when I'm like, send money because these people are suffering. Look, look how miserable they are. It doesn't work because the, we have amazing, amazing lives here. Amazing lives. And so it doesn't resonate with a lot of people in a place like Vancouver when we say, hey, do you know you're really rich and miserable, poor, blind, and naked? They're like, I don't know, man. Life's pretty great. I don't feel like I'm lacking anything. I don't feel like I need anything. That's why people, especially here, generally only get saved when something happens in their life that exposes the truth. Somebody dies. They get laid off. They get sick. They go into a crisis. A marriage falls apart. Something that makes them realize, oh, I actually don't have it all together. So the disciples are, are just floored that Jesus is saying, this guy's in trouble. It's hard for a man who trusts in money to get saved. Verse 26, they're greatly astonished, saying among themselves, underline, who then can be saved? Who then can be saved? They're thinking, we've got, we got no chance. We're a bunch of cussing fishermen. Like, if, how are we going to be saved? And now the issue is this. The disciples are asking the question, if someone who seems to check all the boxes of a good person, if someone who is the most likely to get saved is not good enough to enter the kingdom of heaven, how is there hope for anybody? And now we're into the gospel, the good news that Jesus came to the earth to deliver. Because you see, other belief systems and religions teach that you can be good, good enough for God by living a certain way. And in those belief systems are men who claim to have lived that way, to have figured out how to be good. But Christianity and Jesus teach just the opposite. The Bible says about humanity, there's no one good. No, not one. It's the idea that Jesus is touching on when the rich young ruler calls him good and Jesus says, you know, there's only one who's good. And it's God. The longer you live, the more you'll realize that the best people, the most good people, in the world that you know of, all have their own issues and flaws and sins. All of them, all of them. The question the disciples ask is the ground floor, it's the starting point of the gospel. Who then can be saved? If this is God's standard, who can be saved? For indeed, our situation's hopeless. There is nobody good. So from that place, remembering that reality, that we're in a hopeless situation without God, I hope you'll be as moved as I am by verse 27. But Jesus looked at them and said, with men, it is impossible, but not with God. For with God, 
all things are possible. With men it is impossible. Man cannot save himself. Man cannot make himself good. But with God all things are possible. You see, God can do what man cannot. God can make a way where there is no way. God can take a sinful man and make him good. That's what Jesus came to do. That was the mission. That's the gospel. Write this down because I pray that we never forget it. Our salvation is God's greatest miracle. Our salvation is God's greatest miracle. It is the impossible made real. And while we're on there, just just please note that we love to use this verse for all kinds of unrelated stuff. Man, it's like, I won an Olympic medal. Why? Because with God, all things are possible. That's that's not what he's talking about. If you'll notice, he's talking about the impossibility of man being good enough to earn salvation. And to that point, Jesus says, don't worry, boys. With God, all things are possible. All things are possible. God loves you. He wants to do good things for you. But I don't want to hear you say that you can afford a more expensive car because with God, all things are possible. Don't, Don't do that with this verse. It's talking about something much more important than that. Verse 28. It says, then Peter began to say to him, he goes, see, we've left all and followed you. And in Matthew's gospel, Peter adds on to the end of that statement the question, therefore, what shall we have? I don't think there's anything wrong with what Peter is doing, but it just cracks me up because I almost picture Peter sitting there and like the light bulb goes off and he realizes like, wait a minute, we've done that. Like, like we did something good. Like we, we, we left everything and we're following. Like we did something good. And so he's like, wait, wait, wait. We did that. We, we, so what about us? What about, I think he's genuinely excited. And I don't think Jesus says, what a horrible attitude. I, I think Jesus is just smiling because they really did do that. They really did leave everything to follow Jesus. And so Peter's asking about them, the 12 disciples specifically, and when we read on in a moment, Mark uh, is going to tell us Jesus' answer that applies to all believers, but in Matthew, in Matthew it records Jesus' answer specifically to the 12 disciples. I'll read it to you. Jesus says to them, assuredly, verily, verily, take it to the bank, I say to you, That in the regeneration, in the millennium, in the ages to come, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. It's quite an answer, right? Can you imagine being Peter in that moment, say, well, what what about us? What's going to happen to us? He'd be thrilled if Jesus had said, oh, you'll be rich in heaven. But Jesus says, you'll be on thrones beside me. And you'll judge Israel with me. Twelve disciples are clearly going to enjoy some type of very special status in the millennium and, and in heaven. But let's find out what Jesus has to say to all of us believers. Verse 29. So Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there's no one, underline no one, who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands. Lands literally means fields. It means businesses. For my sake and the gospels, who shall not receive, underline this, a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, underline with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Make a note of this and then we'll unpack it. 
Jesus says that following him will result in tangible blessings in this life. Tangible blessings in this life. So Jesus has just blown up the idea that's on the other side of the prosperity gospel that says, when you're really spiritual, you're poor and miserable. That's the zenith. That's the pinnacle of the Christian walk. Poor, miserable, and, you know, maybe homeless. That's the, really the ideal. That's when you've really attained true spirituality. It's not the heart of God. There's a million ways for God to accomplish this. You know, I know believers who give away most of their income, but they enjoy the good things in their life so much more than those who keep all of their income for themselves. Their lives are filled with so much more joy. How many of you know that you'll be happier in a house that's blessed by God than a mansion that isn't? Jesus is promising that for those who have to walk away from family over the issue of Jesus, he will provide new brothers, new sisters, new fathers, new mothers to fill those relationship needs. Jesus is saying, listen, whatever you give up for me in this life, I'll take care of it in this life. He's saying if if there is a friendship you need to give up for a while, because you have a relationship with me. I'm gonna send somebody to meet that need. And I love that because what it means is it means we have a God who understands that we have needs as people. Jesus had the disciples around him. He had Peter, James, and John, not just because he was training them, but because he had a need, a human need for fellowship as well, for friends. He knows that we have those needs and he says, listen, if you have to give up anything for me, I'm gonna take care of you in this life but I also love Jesus because he's so honest with us he adds in there he says with persecutions he says it doesn't mean things aren't going to be difficult it doesn't mean that there's not going to be times where there won't be friends or family around it just means that when you look at the big picture of your life you'll find that I've taken care of you I've taken care of you What I find so interesting is that Jesus put this in the Bible as part of the continuing conversation that resulted from his interaction with the rich young ruler. So still, him and the disciples are talking right after Jesus has interacted with the rich young ruler because apparently Jesus wants us to know what would have happened if the rich young ruler had sold everything and given it to the poor. Jesus wants us to know that the rich young ruler wouldn't have then spent the rest of his life in poverty No, he would have received a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and land. You see, the issue wasn't money or stuff being bad. The issue was trusting in money and stuff instead of God. The issue was money being his God instead of the Lord being his God. Jesus never told the disciples to sell everything they had because it wasn't an issue for them. The issue isn't money, the issue is who your God is. Verse 31, but many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Things are gonna be very, very different in heaven. Jesus wants us to realize two things. He's warning those of us who are choosing the things of this life over the things of him. But secondly, he's encouraging those of us who are choosing him over the things of this life. And I think there's two applications for our own life. We're almost done, hang in there. Firstly, if you want a relationship with Jesus, if you want to be saved, if you want to be forgiven, that can't happen unless you're willing to give up the throne of your life, unless you're willing to give up that throne to God. 
You have to be willing to make him your God. You can't claim to believe in Jesus, which means believing that he's God, believing that he died for you, believing that he loves you. You can't claim to believe all that but still say, oh, but this other thing, this other person, they're still going to be my God. You can't do it. You can't be saved and claim that Jesus is now your God while keeping something else in a higher position than him in your life. Secondly, when you give your life to Jesus and he comes into your life, there will begin a daily fight for the throne in your life. A daily fight. In other words, the things and the people that used to have that spot are going to fight like hell, and I choose that word intentionally, to get it back. And you're going to have new contenders show up. And I just want to unpack this just for a minute. You see, over and over in the ministry of Jesus, we see him healing people of crippling diseases. And we all understand the joy and the emotion of being healed because Jesus has delivered these people from something that was destroying their lives and holding them back. Blind man comes to Jesus and he leaves seeing. A leper comes to Jesus and Jesus heals him. And we all rejoice and agree this is a wonderful thing. Jesus has done something so great for these people. But what Jesus is doing in ministering to the rich young ruler is no different because money and covetousness are destroying this man's life. They're controlling his life. They're holding him back from what God wants to do in and for this man. And since Jesus asked this man to sell everything and give it to the poor, we can trust that for this man, that's what it would have taken for him to be set free from the grip of money on his life. Yeah, it seems intense, but so was the grip that money and covetousness had on this man's life. So Jesus looks upon him, loves him, and says, let's get you set free from what is holding you back in life. And at that point, the question for the rich young ruler and for you and I, make a note of this. At that point, the question is, do I trust and believe that God knows what's best for me, better than I do? Do I trust and believe that God knows what's best for me, better than I do? That's the question, isn't it? If the answer is yes, then we'll do what God says we need to do. If the answer is no, then we'll just keep doing things our own way. For the rich young ruler, this was the truth. If God wasn't first in his finances, then God wasn't first. That was his situation, but it rings true for every situation in all of our lives, if God isn't first in our relationships, then he's not first. There's no separate compartment. If God isn't first in our time management, then God is not first. If God isn't first at work or school, then God is not first. Whatever is first is our God, and if it's not Jesus, then it's a false God that's holding us back and crippling us in life. Far too often we think and view Jesus as trying to deprive us of something or someone when he's really loving us and trying to lead us to freedom and wholeness. And I think we're a, we're a society of rich young rulers, even in the Western church. We do our best to live out our faith with integrity and sincerity. And we're good citizens who read our Bibles and go to church and take our faith seriously. But then the day comes when God shows up and he asks us to separate ourselves from something or someone in our lives that has crept onto the throne and is now coming before God. And many times we'll answer God with, I love you, but I'm not separating from this thing. 
I'm not separating from this relationship. I'm not doing that. And what's revealed is that we've deluded ourselves into thinking we're really committed to God when we're really not. We're really not. And so if God was once on the throne of your life but no longer is, you're still saved. But know this. You're being held down and you're being held back in life. You're missing out on good things that God wants to bless your life with. You are settling for less than God's best and you're choosing bondage instead of freedom. You're missing out big time. But more important than that, God deserves the throne of your life. He deserves to be your God before all others. Nobody's ever loved you or ever will the way that God has loved you and continues to love you. He deserves to be your God. He deserves to be honored by you saying yes to whatever he's asking you to do. Let me encourage you with this again. A fully surrendered life to Jesus takes time to develop. It's a process. Jesus will never ask you to say yes to something he hasn't empowered you to say yes to. You may be thinking, you know, I'm not sure I'd go if God ever called me to Africa. Well, that's why he hasn't called you to Africa. That's not the question. The question is, what is God asking you to do right now? That's the question. What is he asking you to do right now? Will you say yes to those things? Because even though they might seem radical or drastic or intense, God is only asking you to do what is necessary to be set free and live free. And if he's calling you to take a step of faith and eliminate something from your life that's holding you back, then he's going to give you the power to do it. But first you have to decide that you want to follow Jesus more than anything or anyone else. And like the rich young ruler who Jesus didn't chase after, it's your choice. It's my choice. But if you'll say yes to God now, you'll be amazed at what God will do in your life as you continue to say yes to him in five years, 10 years, 25 years. The only question that matters is, will you say yes to what God is asking you to do today? I hope you will. It's the very best way to live. It's the freest way to live. So perhaps today you know that like Jesus to the rich young ruler, the Holy Spirit has come to you and has spoken in love. And he's shown you that something or someone has climbed under the throne of your life and is now occupying the place that only God should. That thing or that person is coming before God and has become your God. And perhaps the Holy Spirit's saying, cut it off completely. Get that thing out of your life. If the Holy Spirit's asking you to be completely done, don't simply scale it back. Do what the Holy Spirit says. And if the Holy Spirit is calling you to scale something back, don't say, I'll do it soon. Do it now. And if the Holy Spirit simply wants you to recognize that God is now second in your life, then repent. Listen to him. Do whatever he's telling you to do because God loves you. The Lord wants you to live free, church. The Lord wants you to live blessed. The Lord loves you. He loves you. And he knows that the very best thing for you is him being on the throne in your life and him being your God. May we welcome him gladly and may we gladly surrender the throne to him. With that, let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, thank you so much for your word and the truth that you share through your son, Jesus. And Father, I pray that as we take communion today, 
that we would just be reminded of the cost of grace, that you paid a high price to be able to welcome us into your family, to be able to extend to us the offer of the good news, the gospel, that we can be saved. And Father, I pray that we would recognize that anything you ask of us is nothing compared to what you have done for us. Any price you ask us to pay is nothing compared to the price you pay. Any sacrifice you ask us to make is nothing compared to the sacrifice that you became in our place. You are worthy of our whole lives, God. You're worthy of the throne. And we pray that you would take it. Lord, if in any of our lives there is a God before you, Father, we ask that you would tear it down, that you would reclaim your throne, and that, Lord, we would cheer as you tear down our idols and anything that has crept onto the throne, which belongs to only you. Father, we pray that you would keep us fully devoted to you, eager and excited to live free walk free and be set free by your spirit. We just invite you, Holy Spirit, in sincerity and humility and honesty to examine our lives in this moment, to put your finger on, to shine a light on any part of our lives that we have compartmentalized and told ourselves is okay but that is really destroying us from the inside out, that is holding us back, that is crippling us in life. Would you shine a light on those things? And Lord, give us a heart for you that says, yes, Lord, even when we have no idea how it's gonna play out practically, help us to begin with, yes, Lord. I wanna be fully surrendered to you, knowing that you'll give us the power we need to surrender that part of our lives to you. Holy Spirit, speak to us that we would bless you and honor you with fully devoted lives. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says the gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. 
Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.